0: All right, Two Cities Church, that's the bullseye, that's the goal, that's what we're about. Welcome if you're new. That's Reality Church in Miami, and if you're new or you've been coming around for a while, I just want you to know this. That's what we're about. We're about planting churches and making disciples, period, okay? And here's what's interesting. There's not one command in the Bible to plant churches. Did you know that? Not one command. You're like, well, that might be a problem because... Well, we're a church plant, (laughs) and we've planted, we've helped to plant 10 churches. So wait, why is there not one command in the Bible to plant churches? Well, there's lots of commands in the Bibles to make disciples, and we believe that the most effective and efficient and holistic way to make a disciple is to plant a church. And so it's exciting. In the last six years, we've genuinely been able to help plant 10 different churches from Brooklyn, New York, to Miami, Florida. So thank you, to City Church, for your generosity, Okay. Give yourself a hand. you like, can I do that? Yes, give yourself a hand. Um, guys, it is so hard to plant a church. I don't want you to forget that we were a church plant. And the hardest thing about uh, planting a church is launching it, getting it out of the atmosphere, right? It's like, it's like launching a rocket. They say that when you launch a rocket, it takes a swimming pool of fuel every second to get that rocket out of our atmosphere. Once it's out of our atmosphere... It runs on the same gas mileage as a suburban. (laughs) What's the lesson? It takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of fuel to get something out of orbit. So we're committed to planting churches, guys. Miami's a hard place, okay? Every city has idols. The idol in Manhattan is money. The idol in DC is power. The idol in LA is fame. The idol in Miami is vanity. You ever just get on a flight going to Miami? Like everybody's tan and in super shape and wearing too much makeup. What's going on here? <laughs> no joke. And what's hard is the gospel is about the internal, not the external. The gospel is about the heart, not the appearances. So they are going. They are in the center of Miami doing the hard work. Let me tell you, there's three things that we're gonna be about here as we plant churches and we make disciples and we send missionaries. And I just want you, you can memorize them. They all start with S, we'll make it easy, but I want you to know if you're part of our church, you're part of helping us do this. The first thing we do when we send out a church plant, when we help to plant churches and get ready because we're gonna keep doing this every year is we send people. Okay. In fact, here's what I want you to ask. I know some of you, you bought your house and it's your forever home and you're never moving and your parents live here. and I get it. But, but I want you to think, I think this is a healthy thought. Would God be calling me someday to leave this church, to be a part of another church, to help plant a church? So, so when 30 people moved here with me and my family from the Raleigh to area, I don't think I've ever told you this, about six or eight of them said to me, I couldn't believe this. I thought, how do I create this type of church? Six or eight of them said to me, Kyle, we always knew we were gonna be part of a church plant. They said that, they said, we're at the summit. We just, we're at the summit. That's what they do. They plant churches. So we were just, we've been praying and talking about who, who will we go with? When will we go and and where would we go that would be most efficient and effective for the gospel? I thought that's amazing. And here's the thing about people leaving your church. It's always the best people who go with the church plants. We've been trying to get rid of some of you for a while. (laughs) You just stay. You won't go. The second thing is, we are going to be a shepherding church, you know. So I'm on the phone every week, and so is Pastor Dave, and so is the rest of the staff. We're on. We're on the phone with one of the ten pastors or one of their staff that we planted over the last, you know, six years. And why is that? It's like, listen, because when a guy decides he's going to plant a church, Satan puts a bullseye on his back. And man, I just tell you the things that have happened to these guys and to their families, and whether it's temptation, whether it's suffering whether it's opposition and we just, we wanna come alongside them and say, we wanna care for your soul as a pastor. And then thirdly, we are supporting churches financially and prayerfully. Listen, we have given away, we're only six years old, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars to plant churches from Brooklyn to Miami. Again, because of your generosity, we were able to give Reality Church Miami 25 grand but we wanna increase our global footprint. So I wanna tell you about two opportunities I want you to pray about, and and maybe you go, maybe you leave, maybe you move, maybe whatever, we'll figure it out. But I wanna tell you two opportunities. First, Halifax, Nova Scotia. Some of you go, where is that, okay? (laughs) That's America's hat, also known as Canada, okay, if you did not. know. And so here's what's amazing. Uh, There's Jeremy Dagger. You're gonna know him because he's gonna be here preaching for me in a few weeks. So you're gonna get to meet him and you better just stay after and talk and put your hand on him and pray and ask and get to know and because he we love him. And we're and guess what? I called him this week because I was talking, he wanted to know what you know how's the series going, and he's gonna jump in the series and preach. And I'm not gonna tell you what week he's coming, so you gotta come every week. Okay, there you go. Um, anyway, I'm talking to him and he says, Hey man, pray for me. It's been unbelievably hard. We've been here for three months, and my wife's two of her um, grandparents have died in the in the three months we've been here. She's had to fly back to the United States twice while we're trying to set up home here. He said, the first time we found out about the first grandparent was the, the day we pulled in the driveway of our new home. And my kids are struggling to adjust because I got five kids up here. And so we're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're shepherding them. They're gonna be here. You're gonna love Jeremy. Uh, and then secondly, I wanna tell you about Thomas West and his family. They moved from Birmingham, Alabama to London, England. Some of you go, that's some culture shock. Oh yeah. Uh, guys, 11 million people live in London, 2% Christian. Guess when he moved there. He didn't move there 3 years ago. He moved sorry, he didn't move there 3 months ago. He moved there 3 years ago. Right before COVID. How would you like to go through COVID in London? He said ministry there has been unbelievably hard and unbelievably expensive. They have a modest home they rent in London, $5500 a month. And so we're just saying we're going to come alongside you. We're sending our first team to on a vision trip there in October. And we are going to help shepherd them. I spent some time with him in California when we were at the SBC together, just seeing how he's doing. And, um, and then we are gonna support them as well. And so let's pray. Let's dive into Mark. Lord, we just lift up our church planners, our missionary partners, who the, I think it's third John says, they went out for the sake of his name. And I thank you for all the gospel goodbyes that had to be said. I think of the Dagger family, and they invested a decade in Greensboro helping Mercy Hill Church. And all five of their kids at different levels, I think they've got a 12-year-old daughter, had to say a gospel goodbye and have to reacclimate themselves to a whole new world. And we just pray for them, Lord. we pray for fruitful and flourishing ministry. If anyone in this room knows anyone in Halifax, Nova Scotia, Lord, that we'd begin to help them find people of peace. And Lord, we pray for London, England, Lord, just... We understand that Paul always went to the center of a city. And we understand that global cities are unique places from which the gospel can go anywhere and everywhere, Lord. So we pray for Thomas and his family as they are just really feeling like in this last year, they're actually now launching because COVID happened. They're now just really, they're in year three, but it feels like year one. We pray a blessing on them in Christ's name, amen. All right, we got a lot to cover. Uh, there's not a service after this one, so I hope you pack the snack. Okay, Mark chapter seven. I had to cut the short last service. Mark chapter seven, start in verse 24. As you're turning there, raise your hand if you like to travel. You all like to travel, all of you. There's a few of you are home are all you, like, you all like to travel. We all love to travel. Jesus, I don't know if he loved to travel. He traveled a lot, okay? Traveled a lot for being a Galilean peasant. Traveled a ton for being a rabbi. Traveled a lot for being a Middle Eastern man right? He's traveling to Jerusalem. I mean, that's the epicenter of life and culture and thought and religion. Okay. So he travels there. Travel to Capernaum back and forth. That's kind of his headquarters. Uh, We think Peter maybe lived there. Uh, He he may have stayed there a lot. He travels to Nazareth. I mean, he travels to places no one even wants to go. That's where he's from. Travels to small villages, takes that boat everywhere, right? He's always just getting in that boat with his disciples and all we're told is a desolate place. Well, today we're going to see something a little different. Uh, This is the first time, this is the only time not just in Mark's gospel, but in any gospel that Jesus leaves the state of Israel. That's it. We just get a little snapshot of it here in uh, in Mark 7 and Mark 8, and Jesus heads to Tyre and Sidon. Look with me at verse 24. Here's what it says. And from there, he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house, and he did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. Now listen, okay, if Jesus wants to not be found out, he's not going to be found out. This is the way the author's... Is writing to let us know, look at Jesus is so prominent. He's so massive. He looms so large. He's so popular. This is the height of his popularity that even when he leaves Jewish areas, and Jewish areas should have been the only places that knew about him, but his fame had spread so much that he heads out to the Greek and Gentile and Roman areas, and people recognize him. You'll see one story here. Look here. We're going to meet this woman. Look at verse 25. But immediately, now that's Mark's favorite word used 42 times. But immediately a woman, okay, we don't get her name, whose little daughter had an unclean spirit, okay. Not good, not good situation there, heard of him. And look at this and came and fell down at his feet. Then we get a little bit of information about her. Now, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. It's interesting. As you're reading Mark's gospel, if you've been with us for a while, you may think what I thought when I kind of was planning to preach this. I started reading through it and looking at it. I'm like, wait a second. All these stories kind of seem similar, right? It's like, have you heard a story about somebody who needs Jesus <laughs> and they walk up to him and they haven't eaten and then he heals it? <clears throat> you may read the story at first and go, well, what's the difference between this story and the woman who had a bleeding? Well, what's the difference between this story and the leper? What's the difference between this story and the paralytic? I mean, why are they? I mean, why are they all in here? Well, they all teach us different lessons. I think the main lesson today from this first story with this woman is how do we approach God? right? I mean, there's different ways people think about approaching God. Let me give you the two extremes. Historically, approaching God has fit fit into one of two categories. Uh, The older view, and and some people still believe this, the older view, uh, and and the the view in a lot of places in the world still today, is God is impossible to know. He cannot be approached. Maybe he exists. Okay, let's say he exists, because I mean, we don't believe that nobody times nothing equals everything, and you know, the fact that there's unity and diversity in the world, and The fact that there's something other than nothing. Okay, God exists, fair enough. But there's 8 billion of us. And we're on this little small planet in this little small galaxy. I mean, come on. You think God cares about your schoolwork? You think the God of the universe would like to talk to you? You think you can know you, little finite you could know God. It's like, well, you can see there's some compelling arguments to that sometimes if you just heard that. You go, well, maybe maybe I am small. Maybe I... Maybe God, maybe I can't know God. Well, we don't really believe that here in America. We we tend to believe this. It's like I can know God. It's easy to know God. God, Jesus is my co-pilot. Right? Or the, the for a long time, um, a lot of celebrities started wearing Jesus as my homeboy apparel. Whatever that means. And it's this, it's this, it's, there's all spirituality kind of fits into this. I feel close to God when I do yoga. I mean. I I can Basically, the average American thinks God is a bigger, smarter version of them. I mean, of course, he's God, he's bigger than me. Of course, he's not not a ton smarter than me, but he's smarter than me. But the good thing is that he thinks, God and I think the same about everything, basically. That's kind of the view of the average American. Well, this woman shows us that we have to respond to God in humility. We have to respond to God as a person because God isn't a force, he has a face. And we have to respond to God by allowing him to speak to us, even when it's hard to hear. So, because I want to show you this. Look, look here, look what happens with the woman. You go, what's going on with this woman? Verse 26, continued. And she begged him. Have you ever begged anyone? It's humiliating. Have you ever had to beg? Here it says, present continuous. She continued to beg him. She's desperate. Well, you go, why? Look, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Okay, now you go, if you're a parent, you go, I get it, I get it. I thought it was strange. I thought it's weird that she was yelling out for him. I thought it was a little weird that she got down on her knees. It may be uncomfortable when I told her, when we were told that she was begging, but I get it now. Her kid is in a major crisis, right? And we say this here all the time. You're only as happy as your least happy kid. And if you ever meet somebody and their kid is in trouble, it's like they are a different person. They are willing to do. They are willing to spend. They are willing to visit. They are willing to say a lot of different things. Reminds me of the movie John Q. If you've not seen John Q, I'm about to ruin it for you, okay? You had 15 years, okay? This is it. John Q is this unbelievable movie. It's one of the only movies I can remember watching and sweating, okay? Too much information for some of you. But, um, and, but when John Q, Denzel Washington's son, young boy, has a heart problem. And they go, try to go through the normal channels that you and I might go through, and they meet with the doctors, and they find out I don't have insurance, and we don't have money. And so they can't get on the donor list. And Denzel Washington, just has, he's got this phone call with his wife, and it's just moving, and she's like, I need you to do something. And he's this blue-collar dude. He's like, I don't have money. I don't have whatever. And he goes, and you find out in the movie, he holds up the entire hospital to get his son a heart transplant. Now, not recommending that, <laughs> but I understand. And you see it, and there's part of you that goes, i I might do something like that. I I might go to the, Denzel didn't care. He's like, maybe you haven't figured this out. My son's gonna live. He's like, I I don't care if I gotta go to jail. There's a moment where he says, take my heart. I mean, it's moving on multiple levels. And you realize, that's what a parent does when they're desperate. I heard a story of a a dad and he got a terrible diagnosis about his son in the hospital. You know, you just, you have one of those meetings and the x-ray and the surgery doesn't go the way it's supposed to. And he says, he gets this kind of bad news. Your son's not gonna make it. And he said, it tells the story. He says, I remember walking down the hallway, and I remember the elevator door opening up. He said, and I crawled into the corner of the elevator. And I cried out for God to do something. He said, I don't even remember if anybody else was in the elevator. I mean, that's that's what we're talking about here. There's just a desperation from this lady, which makes what Jesus says even more surprising. Look what he says to her. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. Yikes. Now, by the way, this woman had a lot of things going against her. She was a woman, which would have been the wrong gender to be talking to a man and a rabbi. She was the wrong ethnicity, Syro-Phoenician. She was the wrong religion, Gentile. Uh, She was in the wrong spiritual condition, a demonic daughter. And in Matthew's account, we're told the disciples said, Jesus, get rid of her. She has other people trying to discourage her. And then Jesus says to her, he gives this illustration. He says, guys, he says, or he says to her, he says, um, he uses this illustration of a family meal. He says, at the family meal, the children eat, not the dogs. And there's a couple things he's teaching there. One is the priority of the Jews. Like, like here's an interesting thing that even the even the apostle Paul who ends up being the apostle to the Gentiles. So he was super Jewish and God says, well, I'm sending you to the Gentiles. Do you know that every, read it in Acts, every time Paul lands in a city, he always goes to the synagogue before he goes to the marketplace, every time. I hope the Jews will believe, I'm gonna to go to the marketplace but I'm gonna go, the gospel is to go to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Well, Jesus uses this illustration, says, hey, listen, it's, it's the food is for the children, it's, it's not for the dogs. Now we go, wow, now part of us go, is it an insult to be called a dog? You're like, well, I love my dog, right? We live in this weird culture where we're obsessed with our dogs. Uh, Back then, dogs were on the streets. Nowadays, it's like the average city, the average major city in America, especially Manhattan and San Francisco, more dogs than kids. I've told you about dinks, right? Dinks are everywhere. Double income, no kids. Something almost as popular are Didos. Double income dog owners, okay? They're all over Ardmore. They're just walking their dogs, you know? They're all over downtown. You have seen them. Well, Here's what he's saying. He's saying, it's not right to take the scraps from the table and give them to the dogs. Now, this is hard because, you know, he's. Uh, some people try to soften. it. I always enjoy reading commentators and the different ways that people try to soften this. Well, he doesn't really use the word for dog. He uses the word puppy. It's like, no, it, it, it's, it's supposed to be harsh. But I want you to see what happens here. Look, look what happens in verse 28. Uh, but he answered him, yeah, or sorry, but she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, well, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Now, actually, Matthew's account tells us on top of all that, he also says, what great faith you have. So that's great. Now, here's what I want us to notice about this lady and the lesson I want us to learn. Uh, The first thing I want us to notice is she is the first person in the gospel of Mark to understand a parable. Isn't that interesting? Jesus tells parables for the crowd, they don't get it. Jesus tells parables to his disciples and they later say, dude, what does that mean? Can you tell us what it means? Jesus tells parables to the Pharisees and they don't get it. Jesus tells the parable to a hurting woman who's got everything, who has none of the right credentials and she gets the parable. Not only is she the first to get the parable, she's the first to respond correctly to a parable. I guess you gotta get it to respond correctly. And, And then here's the third thing. She's the first person to not completely lose an argument with Jesus. I'm not saying she won the argument, okay? But I'm saying every time Jesus has an argument with somebody, you know, Pharisee, disciple, they say something, they challenge him, he gives a scriptural insight or a principle and they're silenced basically. This is the first time where actually she says something he goes, oh, okay. Demon's gone, faith is great. So what's the principle here? Here's the principle. The woman receives the hard things Jesus has to say about her. You have to understand that Christianity begins Well, it's it's good news, bad news, good news, right? Good news, God created you. Bad news, you're sinful and broken, headed to hell. Good news, but Christ died for you. The the thing about Christianity is you have to be able to receive the hard things that Jesus says about us. You you go, well, dog, that's kind of hard. Yeah, what she says is, okay, fine. I'm not claiming that I'm a great person. I'm not claiming my rights, that's religion. I'm not saying be good to me and heal my daughter and save me. Because I'm a good person, in fact, I'm saying I know I'm not a good person, I know I have nothing to claim, I know I'm a dog, I'm not claiming anything in myself. I'm asking you to be gracious to me in spite of all that. Now you gotta understand, if you if you read your Bible, you're going to be offended, if you're reading it correctly, about what Jesus says about you. But it's always grace and then or sorry, it's always truth and then grace. So, in other words, you read the Bible and it goes, you're a sinner. It's like, I am. You know, you're 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 a sinner by nature and by choice. You don't just do sinful things, you are sinful. And it has infected and affected every area of your life. You go, okay, that's hard to hear. How about this? You need to be rescued. It's like, that's kind of offensive. Not you need to be rehabilitated. Not you need to be slightly reformed. Not you need to be better educated. You need to be rescued. It's like, really? That's how bad my situation is? Yeah, the other word is saved. The other word is delivered, okay? I mean, Jesus says some really hard things. He says, you are in the path of the wrath of God. Jesus says, if you do not repent and believe in him, you will die in your sins and go to hell. And hell is defined as eternal, irreversible, conscious, torment. Some of you go, being called a dog ain't that bad. The principle is, really, the principle is I let Jesus tell me who I am, even though it's hard to hear. And I respond to that in faith, and I ask for grace. Okay, I'm a sinner. I need forgiven. Okay, I, I I got myself in big trouble, and I can't get myself out. Will you save me? Okay, I, I don't want to go to hell. In fact, I know I can't, I can't save myself. In fact, <laughs> this is a whole other sermon, but the Apostle Paul says in, in Romans 4, if you try to work for your salvation, it works against you. If you try to, if you try to do something good for God to earn it, it's insulting. It's like somebody owes you 10 billion bucks, and you're like, here's five bucks. It's like, keep it. It's insulting. And so the first thing we learn is a great story of a woman who needs grace and accepts the hard things Jesus has her. Look at verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went to Sidon to the Sea of Galilee. In the region of the Decapolis, we're getting far into Roman territory here. It says this. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed. We'll come back to that, that's important. He sighed and he said to him, "Ephetha, that is be opened. And his ears were opened and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Okay, so here's what we're doing. Now we're in a section of Mark that doesn't show up in Matthew. The theologians call this the great omission of Matthew. It's two stories by Jesus that are only found in Mark, found in no other gospel. It's two healing accounts. It's the healing account that we just read of a man who is deaf. And right after that account, we're gonna see some Pharisees and the disciples who are spiritually deaf, we talk about a physically deaf guy, we go to a spiritually deaf person. And then the final miracle that is only in Mark is him healing a blind person. Well, what is that right after? Well, it's right after we get the stories of, we would also say, the disciples being spiritually blind and spiritually being able to, un, to not be able to, spiritually be unable to see. And so what I want us to see here is, as is we're going to look at the reality of physical blindness and spiritual blindness and uh, physically hearing and spiritual healing. But there's, a, there's another topic that we kind of have to camp out on and talk about as a church together for, it's gonna be a little interesting for about 10 or 15 minutes here. And it's a topic that I've never addressed directly, but it shows up all over scripture. This happens to me every once in a while. I'm like, yeah, I need to talk about this, but we've never talked about this. It's disability. Because you you read these passages and what is Jesus constantly doing? Well, I mean, he's doing lots of exorcisms, right? Uh, (laughs) He's dealing a lot with demons, but when he's not dealing with the demonic, he's, I mean, I don't know, what would you call all these healings? I mean, he's dealing with people who have disabilities. I mean, okay, there's a blind guy, there's a deaf guy, there's a lame guy. Uh, how broad of the category you want to make it, but there's the leper. I mean, you just disability is a broad category, and I'm going to try to talk about it. I've already done it twice. <laughs> I'm going to try to talk about it carefully, pastorally, helpfully, biblically, uh, because it's a, it's a topic that we have to think about, um, but it's so personal. You know, I don't know, some of you might have a disability, or and certainly in a room this size, you do, or you. You might know somebody who does and disability is so hard for so many reasons part of it is how chronic and constant it is you know you meet somebody because sometimes sometimes you're born with a disability and then sometimes it's aging and accidents or sometimes it's illness and injury and all of a sudden you're like something happened to me at 25 years old and now my body or my brain doesn't function properly and i'm looking at 50 more years of this and so you, you think disability fits theologically under the category of suffering, but I've never, which we talked a lot about suffering. I've never really talked about disability and we need to talk about it. A couple things to say. First, it's interesting. The first disability we're told about is a, a deaf person. Now you need to know this. My wife told me this, I didn't know this. Um, many, or maybe you might say most of the deaf community today does not want their deafness to be known as a disability. They say we have our own language. We have our own community. We have our own schools, fair enough. I want you to understand that particularly back in this time though, deafness was considered a severe disability because they lived in an oral culture, which you're very dependent on being able to hear. We live in a visual media print culture to where it's not as necessary or, or the primary channel isn't the ear for everything, it's also the eye. But, but I wanna to talk to us a little bit about disability and, and, and I wanna do it a couple angles. First, let's just talk about what disability is. There's two elements and aspects of disability. Okay. The first element is the functional element. The second element is the social element of disability. The functional element is, and I'm trying to be careful how I talk about this. The functional element is some part of a person isn't fully functioning properly. Not as God has intended it, not as it works in the atypical person. It could be a mental facility, faculty. It could be a physical ability, it's usually some type of capacity or capability. So there's the functional element of it, large category. We can't talk about every type of disability. Then there is the social dimension of that disability, which is how people treat you because you have it. Which part of, part of the issue with a lot of us is we don't know what to do with a person who has disabilities. Like, oh, I don't wanna avoid her, but I don't wanna give her too much attention. How do I even ask about this? I'm interested to know what happened, but how do I ask the mother? Well, I'll tell you two things. One, I I, I knew a guy and his daughter was severely disabled and we had them over for lunch. This was at my, this is years ago, not at this church. And he said said to me, we were talking and he's a very open guy. And he said, hey, he said, the best thing to do if you see my daughter or someone like my daughter is not to say what's wrong or not to say what happened. That's what people say normally, because they're just they're trying to be helpful and they want to know. He said, the best thing to say is, what's her story? I thought, put that in the back of my mind, that's really, really helpful. Second thing was talking to a guy in our church and his son was born with a disability and they found out while his wife was pregnant. He said, as soon as we found out that my son was born with a disability, he said, we try to, like we all would do, like, who do I tell? Okay, tell mom and dad, tell brother, sister, tell close friends. As it gets closer, tell, tell more people. He says, we're telling everybody and as soon as we tell everybody, the first thing they all do is apologize. He said, it was really he said, he said, it just didn't hit me right. Everybody's telling me they're sorry about my son. He said, my son's being born with a bunch of sorries. And so we've got to figure this out. Now, what does the world say about disability? Well, he says, you want the, it's like, go ahead. You want, to, you want the cold hard facts of atheistic Darwinian evolution? I'll tell you, it's not very kind to the disabled or people with disabilities. Because here's what's going to happen. Anyone who has kids knows what this happens. You're at a restaurant, you're at an amusement park, you're at a school function, you're downtown, and your son or daughter points. And you say, don't point, (laughs) right? Don't point. And they say, that girl over there, why is she in a wheelchair? Or maybe they're more theological. Mom, why did God make her that way? You gotta have an answer. And here's the Darwinian atheistic evolution answer. Chance, unlucky, random, unfortunate genetic mutation. Well, what's the hope, mom and dad? What would be the hope for them? Technology increasing, surgeries, science, medicine. Well, How about after death, is there any hope? No, they die and disappear. So the only hope for the disabled after death from the atheistic Darwinian evolution perspective is they die and disappear, so they don't exist anymore, but at least they don't have that disability. It's like, well, none of that's helpful. Well, the disciples are confused about disability, right? So uh, this is why this is important for us to have this conversation, because I think in the church, we, the disciples show us the main way that Christians can be confused. Because in John 9, which you don't need to go there, but it's a great place to talk with your community group. In John 9, the disciples see this blind guy. And they do the right thing. They ask Jesus about it. They say, Jesus, is this guy blind because of something he did or something his parents did? And Jesus says something that's so helpfully pastoral to people. He says, wrong. This guy's not blind because of something he did. Because that's what happens when something, you ever get in an accident, you ever have an illness or an injury, you will search your conscience like crazy. Did I do something? The second thing is he says, it's not the parents' fault. That's really helpful because parents are so hard on themselves if anything happens to any of their kids. Had a lady last night, daughter born with a disability, she came up to me, gave me a hug, said, thank you for the John 9 reminder. She said, I'm a Christian, but I still search my mind sometimes. Because nine months is a long time to be pregnant. and You make a lot of decisions in nine months. Lots of things can happen. And you start, you, did I do something wrong? So Jesus says, no, 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 it's not because of that. Then he says something really profound to us. He says, this person, it's hard for us to hear. He says, this person has this disability, so in some way, God can be seen in their life. You go, what? It's like something we're thinking about for 10 years. It's like, okay, so, so Jesus tells us there's purpose, but here's the tension, and, and, and as my friend says, I'm, we just went on a long walk for a short drink of water here, okay? So let me, <laughs> that was us going all over the place for me to bring us all back, okay? I want you to see what Jesus does, okay? It says that before Jesus heals the man, It says that he sighs, did you see that? We don't get a lot of Jesus sighing in the scriptures, but this is one of them. And why do you sigh? Why do you go? Because you're disappointed, because you're frustrated, because you're overwhelmed. Because here's what Jesus realizes and knows, he's dealing with the weight of living in a world the way it's not supposed to be. So here's what we have to say from a Christian perspective about disability. One, we have to say that, man, God created every person, no matter how abled or disabled, fully, completely in the image of God. That's I think that's a uniquely Christian perspective. So what you're seeing from guys like Peter Singer, Google him sometime. He's at Princeton. He's like a thought leader and all this kind of stuff. He basically says he wants to redefine humanity as uh, humanness through ability and autonomy. And if you lose autonomy, ability to take care of yourself, or certain abilities, he considers you less and less human. Well, that's not the Christian perspective. The second thing we need to realize is that disability is part of the brokenness and fallenness of our world. We all, to some extent, bear the brokenness of just living in a world the way it's not supposed to be. Some of that brokenness in some of our lives are more evident. Some of that brokenness shows up in a disability. Now, the other tension is, we're trying to say there's meaning and there's purpose, and there is ultimately a reason this. At the same time, we say, we are looking forward to heaven when this goes away and you're fully restored. And that's a really, if you ever walk with a family that's really, really hard to walk through. I, I got a buddy, he's a pastor. Believe it or not, he's a pastor, great speaker, speaks all over the United States, and he has Tourette's. And so every once in a while, you know, while he's speaking, his face will go in different directions. And every once in a while, he'll get caught up on his words. And every once in a while, a different word will come out and it's a little awkward at times, he would say this, to, to be a communicator and have Tourette's. And he says, everywhere he goes and speaks, people come up to him afterwards, and this isn't a bad thing. He says, they come up to him afterwards, and they pray away his Tourette's. <laughs> you know, and they say, they come up, and they just, hey, can and he said, and I said, well, what do you do? Because he's been dealing with this for decades. I said, does it ever offend you when they come up? He says, no, I want my Tourette's to go away. I just, he just said, I, he said, now, it, people have connected with me because of my weakness. It's probably made me more winsome. It's made me more dependent on God and I want it to go away. (laughs) I've got another friend, it's a horrible story. His father um, became a quadriplegic later in life and he and his dad are are both Christians. And he said, my dad and I often talk when my dad dies, he's going to heaven and the wheelchair is going to hell. (laughs) But that's the tension. The tension we live in as a robust Christian view is to say, God there is a reason, though we may not be able to fully see and articulate it, right? Because it says the works of God may be evident. You know, people think there's a good chance the apostle Paul had a disability. He calls it a thorn in his flesh. Most people think Paul had bad eyesight. That's why he says to the Galatians, look with what big letters I write. That's why he, he he said to the Galatian church, you would have given me your own eyes, which is a weird, that was not a common colloquial saying. That's weird to say, which makes me think they tried to take care of him while he had an eye issue. And Paul basically says, I asked God to take this away, and he hasn't. And he says, My grace is sufficient, my power will be made perfect in weakness. So we want to say there's a reason now, and there's full restoration coming. That's the Christian worldview. Now look, we see that we see a picture of the restoration here. If you look at me at verse 35. And his eye, sorry, and his ears were open, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And then look at verse 37. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He's done all things well, he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So What we're seeing here, these these healings are snapshots and trailers of what we're all going to, Christians, what we're all going to experience in heaven, which is the full restoration of all things, the full renewal of all things, the, the reconciliation of relationships. And what Tim Keller says, he says, In heaven, all unsad things will come untrue. It's this beautiful picture. And what he says here is he says, he says, Jesus says, or they say to Jesus, He does all things well. Now, that's easy to say when God's healing you. It's harder to say when you're going through suffering. It's really a statement of faith. I don't know if you ever heard of James Montgomery Boyce. James Montgomery Boyce, he was so famous as a pastor, it's hard to explain. He pastored 10th Presbyterian Church in downtown Philadelphia. He was an amazing, he wrote books, he had a national ministry, he traveled the country. And uh, one day in his 60s, he gets this diagnosis of cancer. And from diagnosis to death was six weeks and his church prayed for him, like you know, like you guys would, and they believed God for him, and they were hoping for healing. And about three or four weeks into it, when it was definitely he was on his last leg and he was heading home, he told his church, "He said, guys, thank you. I'm going home, and it's okay. He does all things well. He's going to help me go through this well." It's like, wow, that's a that's a way to say it. So Jesus heals this person. And then he goes on. We're going to go quickly. Uh, we're going to skip the. Um, the feeding of the 4,000, let me just, it's very, very similar to the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, let me just say this as an interesting note in Mark. The feeding of, uh, people People see the three meals as a way to think about the book of uh, Mark. So there's the his ministry to the Jews and then the feeding of the 5,000. His ministry to the Greeks and Gentiles and then the feeding of the 4,000. His specific ministry to the disciples and then the Lord's Supper. So an interesting way to think through the book. But watch what happens in verse 11. And the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply, so this is even a deeper sigh at unbelief, in his spirit. And he said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them and got into the boat and went to the other side. It's interesting, you might say, if you're reading this and you've been following along in the Mark series, you go, well, come on, guys. What, sign, what, what more signs do you need? I mean, you, you heard his teaching and you were in the synagogue when he healed the guy with the hardened hand or the withered hand and... You were in the you know, home when he heals the paralytic. I mean, we, we read the stories. The Pharisees are there. They saw the signs. What we're seeing here is, is something I think the Pharisees teach us about ourselves. Is Here's what the Pharisees are saying. I want you to prove yourself to me on my terms. And I think that's what we do. It's like God's like, well, how, okay, I gave you the creation of the world. Well, that's a great sign that I exist. I gave you the canon of Scripture. I gave you the person of Christ. I gave you 2,000 years of church history. And we look at all that. Certain Americans look at that and they go, "Okay, yeah, I know you. I know you gave me your sinless life, your, your substitutionary death, your victorious resurrection. I know of your teaching and I know of your claims and I know of two thousand years in church history. But I also need a boyfriend. I'm not going to believe until I get that boyfriend. I'm not going to believe until mom gets better. You know, I'm not going to believe unless I get into this college." I'm not going to believe unless my marriage gets restored. We want God to do something specific based on our command, and then we tell him that we'll believe. What you see here is this is the first time commentators notice that Jesus gets angry with the Pharisees in such a way that he dismisses them. Normally, he's back and forth with them. Normally, he's having conversations. Normally, he's sharing scripture. Normally, he's answering questions. Right here, he just leaves. Three verses. You have to remember that God is infinite, but he's not infinitely patient. So this is the time where Jesus transitions to really spending less and less time with the religious leadership. He goes into the boat. I'll summarize verses 14 through 20. He goes into the boat and the disciples realize they don't have bread. And, but Jesus is warning them about the Pharisees. He says, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. And, and leaven, and when Jesus uses leaven, he's always using it negatively because leaven is that which spreads secretly and silently until it infects and affects everything. And so he's, he's warning them. He's basically seeing the unbelief of the Pharisees, and he's warning his disciples not to have the same. Well, they don't get it, right? If you read the story, they say, he's talking about bread because we forgot to bring bread. It's so silly that you're like, it has to be true. They just, they just, they are spiritually, there's just the dullness of the disciples. And I want you to see how verse 21 ends. Look here. It says this, and Jesus said to them, do you not yet understand? Now, What's interesting is, see in this verse, both a rebuke and an encouragement. The rebuke is, guys, don't you get it yet? Don't, I mean, you've been with me, you saw my teachings, you've seen my miracles. I I fed 5,000, then I fed 4,000. I saved you from the storm. Do you not yet understand? But then there's another way to read this and see the hope. Do you not yet understand? You're going to. You're going to understand There's going to be a moment where it's gonna click. There's going to be a moment where your eyes are going to be open and you're fully going to understand things. But it happens in stages. Well, that's interesting because we're about to get the only miracle in the whole Bible that happens in stages. Look here, Final, final story. Verse 22, and they came to Bethsaida and some people brought to him a blind man. So there was the first disability, the deaf man. Now we got the second disability, the blind man. Pictures of spiritual deafness and spiritual blindness. And the cannabis to Bethsaida and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes, we'll return to that. Yikes. <laughs> and laid his hands on him, he asked, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Now, only miracle that happens in stages, right? Usually Jesus, it's like someone touches him and it's healed. And he touches someone and it's healed. Sometimes it's just someone visits and they say, you know, my son's at home sick. And he says, great, he's healed. And he's healed. So it makes us, Jesus does everything on purpose for a purpose. And so it makes us think, well, why is this healing in two stages? Is it that he does stage one and it doesn't work? Jesus goes. Hold on, I got to charge my battery. Just one second here. You know, no. Um, we, you know, I'm being silly because obviously not. So there's obviously a lesson that a healing takes stages, and I think the lesson is exactly that. That the way that God heals us is often in stages. We are, we live in verse 24 right now, where we see but we don't see fully. I mean, I don't think that's even. I think there's a lot of theological you know, foundation for that. The apostle uh, Paul says, he's describing our life now. He says, though now we see through a mirror dimly. What's happening, I think this is really also helpful for us is God sometimes heals us in stages. And we know theologically, the first thing God heals when you come to Christ is he heals your soul. You know, and you say, well, thank God, but I got a lot of relationships that aren't, aren't healed. You know, some of that reconciliation may not happen till heaven. I've told you before, I always wonder what David and Uriah are going to say to each other when they saw each other in heaven. That was a reconciliation that couldn't happen until afterwards. There's, 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 there's hope for the future and a reality that God heals us in stages. Now, this is what Christians have called sanctification. Sanctification is becoming more and more like Christ. Sanctification is becoming the godliest version of you. Sanctification is becoming practically and progressively more holy, and it happens in stages. But what I want to show you most interesting as we close is I want you to see how he heals him. So remember the first time he heals the guy? Chapter ago, he puts his fingers in his ears and spits and puts his you know, finger on his tongue. We go, okay, that was a little little much, but okay. And then we come to this, this and if you read it carefully, it doesn't say that he you know, spit on his hand and gently wiped. It says he spit on his eyes. And it's interesting because I love reading commentators of how commentators try to describe this. they like, well, there's no history, there's no other verses on spitting that would make us think this is, there's no other scripture verses. And in and the, and the context and the time, there doesn't seem to be anything they thought was special with saliva. We're not sure why he spit on his eyes. Well, here's what I think it is. I think if we're honest, the idea of spitting on somebody's eyes that were probably maybe deformed or had a bunch of things wrong with them is gross. It's repulsive. It's disgusting. Here's what Jesus is teaching us. The way that Jesus heals us often looks disgusting to us. Can you think of another instance of that? How about the cross? When you think about the cross of Christ, if you wanna see how did God heal your soul and forgive your sins in the most disgusting, ugly, repulsive way you could imagine. If you ever think about the cross, it's, it's gross if you only see it with the human eye, not with the eyes of faith. I mean, it is so unbelievably terrible that if we were to all somehow be able to teleport back 2,000 years ago and, and just see any crucifixion, I don't know that any of us could handle it. I mean, we're so domesticated. We're so sanitized as a society. I mean, just so you know, all of the crucifixions, this never makes it into the movies for for obvious reasons. All the crucifixions were done naked. So that was a shameful part of it. It's like, let's shame this person before they die. And all the crucifixions were also done at eye level because they wanted you to see the pain on that person's face so that you wouldn't go against Rome. Except if they crucified a woman. If they crucified a woman, which didn't happen that often, they would crucify her backwards. Because even the Romans said it's too painful to watch a woman suffer that much and see it on her face. And when you watch a crucifixion, I mean, I don't wanna be too candid here, but it took hours and hours and hours. So that means that there was feces everywhere. There's urine everywhere. There's sweat everywhere. There's blood everywhere. And then everybody's dying by suffocation. So they're screaming and they're crying out. And you look at that, and if you just see it with human eyes, you go, That is the grossest thing I have ever seen. I can't look at it. And if you're able to see it with the eyes of faith, you go, Oh my goodness, this is what God has used to save me. That Jesus was in my place for my sins, He was my substitute. And that's why we sing basically love songs about the cross. It's strange. I brought some non-Christians from Duke with me one time to church. They, I, I said, what did you think of the sermon? They go, the sermon was okay. The songs were, were crazy. You're singing nothing but the blood. What does that mean? You have to see it with eyes of faith. What the cross did is the Bible says, Jesus, by his stripes, we are healed. And what we say to you today, no matter what you're going through, no matter what disability you might be dealing with, there's a reason here and there's restoration coming. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for these interactions. We are just so desperate to see what it's like for people to interact with Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the faith of the Syrophoenician woman. And if there's anyone in here right now who just needs to beg you for something, Lord, they just need to beg you to work on their kid's life. They just need to beg you for their marriage. They need to beg you for a breakthrough with the sin struggle. God, I just pray they would beg you. But I pray that no one here, no one who comes to two cities, no one who can hear my voice right now would be spiritually blind and spiritually deaf. The, the, the point of this whole story is that that's actually the worst thing. The worst thing is to not to not be able to hear sound, but not to be able to hear scripture. The worst thing is not to be able to not see light, but not to be able to see the light of the gospel, Lord. And so we pray that you would use us and you would use our church to open up the eyes of the blind and to open up the ears of the spiritual death. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.